Hello, welcome to the University of Brighton podcast. I'm Richard Newman. Before we start, I just wanted to let you know about our new Time to Explore section on our website, brighton.ac.uk. There you'll find out about all the online events we're doing for students who are either thinking about coming to university or have already applied. There's a packed schedule, so do check it out. And while we can't give you any physical tours of the campuses right now because of the coronavirus restrictions, you can take a look around virtually with our new virtual tours. Well worth a visit, brighton.ac.uk. The link will be in the podcast description. Now, this week, we've seen plenty of stories about whether holidays will be possible this summer because of the coronavirus pandemic. And later this month, we'll get your questions to Dr. Marina Novelli about international travel. But what if we can't go abroad this year? What if staycations are the way forward? My guest this week is Dr. Nigel Jarvis, tourism, hospitality and events course leader to talk about the UK tourism industry. Hi, Nigel. How are you getting on? I'm good. I'm having a staycation at my home. <laughs> as we all are at the moment, as we all are. How have you found it the last few months from a personal and, uh, and work sort of level? I think we're quite lucky in academia to be able to do our jobs online and still deliver lectures and have a lot of one-on-one tutorials with uh, students. And of course, towards the end of the year, it's just about marking too. So mm. I think I've coped quite well. And my three cats have loved having me home. And they photobombed quite a few of my meetings in the past. Two of them are out right now and one's sleeping. So hopefully that's okay. <laughs> well, they're welcome to make an appearance if they want to. They can come on. Why not? Um, before we get really started on this thing, can you tell us about um, the course that you teach on and um, give us a little brief background on, on how you arrived at this point at the uni? Yeah, I'm the course leader for uh, tourism events and hospitality, although my main uh, teaching interest is in the tourism area, a little bit of uh, interest in sport tourism, but mainly looking at the impacts of tourism, how the tourism industry is structured in the world, who are the major players organizing tourism. I'm also very interested in running attractions management. Uh, my colleague, Dr. Claire Whedon, myself, in the second year, we run a virtual uh, theme park simulation game where students have to manage a theme park online. So I look forward to um, teaching students on that course. So attractions management and kind of the backbone of any tourism industry in lots of countries and very interested in globalization and tourism. And as I said, sport tourism, increasingly destinations are looking at how sports events can be used to attract tourists as well. So those are my interests in teaching. Okay. And what's your background before you get into academia? In terms of my background, uh, my parents ran a campground back in Canada. So I grew up with that in my early 20s, kind of in the tourism business there. I did geography as a degree at university in Toronto and went into work in Ministry of Tourism. So I've done some of the government side collecting statistics for the Ontario Ministry of Tourism. Got into what I really enjoyed was consultancy, a small consultancy firm in Canada looking at tourism and leisure master plans, looking at feasibility studies for museums and um, leisure facilities as well. Uh, had that background. That kind of killed my uh, industry in a recession in the early 90s. I came back and decided, you know, 
when there's problems in finding jobs, it's good to go back to university and upgrade your skills. So I came over to Britain to do my master's degree in leisure management with full intention to go back to Canada, but I have a, a British passport as well. My parents are British, got a job teaching at Brighton University. This is my 25th year wow. being in Britain. So uh, since then, I've done my PhD as well at the University of Brighton. So I really enjoy teaching. Cool. I'm really interested by the attractions one, by the way. It takes me back to um, playing theme park, I think, when I was, <laughs> when I was a lot younger. I used to love that. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, Claire and I, if I could tell you, uh, yeah. I know there are some online games. But Claire and I worked with a key manager at Chessington Theme Park a few mm -hmm. years ago. I, I won a, a little bit of grant money from the university to develop a unique game. So it's just for our students and they have to make marketing decisions, hire a certain number of people They have to come up with their theme and they run two um, years, uh, six operating seasons and they have to do a marketing launch a brochure before the simulation starts and then they have to do an annual general meeting. So I've got a good sense of, you know, what the key variables are working with Chessington and we developed it and we, had some grant money, as I said, from the university, and we hired a computer student from another department at the University of Brighton who had expertise in simulation games, and it was fantastic. And then we just, uh, I got some money a few years ago to upgrade it because it needed a new web browser, et cetera. And we added in certain other marketing variables like Twitter and uh, social media things so it's upgraded now and i can do com complaint letters too now within the simulation before i used to just do it manually and now i can do it all live so my students really like it because it's quite a different way of teaching i mean we do go visit theme parks and attractions as part of that product that module anyways but it's it's a nice combination that's great um Okay, let's get stuck in. We'll quickly touch on international travel first because we know at the moment the holidays abroad are, are really sketchy. Um, quarantine rules come in, make things difficult. Um, we're recording this on Wednesday when some papers are talking about the possibility of holidays abroad happening this summer. Um, I mean, really, it's not just about what we want, though, is it? I mean, other countries have to, have to let in UK visitors from the UK in the first place um, as, as well. It's a, it's, it's it's really, a two-way thing. It's, we're getting a lot of mixed messages. It's very complex. I've seen just today that Portugal said they would welcome UK uh, tourists without quarantine, whereas other countries would say possible quarantine. And then, of course, there's the issue is if we do go abroad to travel, we have these messages from the government saying, well, we'd have to self-quarantine here. And I can see that the British government is getting a lot of pressure from uh, the business side, airlines, tour operators, et cetera, to say, well, that's just not practical, this quarantine. Uh, and that would really affect the tourism industry. So right now it's really, really a complex, unclear situation. And I think when people book holidays, they want some sense of clarity. So we'll have to see what the next few weeks bring for us. Regardless of whether we get the go-ahead to, to go abroad, will people really want to go on the flights? I mean, will, will they be safe from a social distancing point of view, from you know, close confinement? It seems like the, the absolute anti of everything we're being told to do, doesn't it, going on a flight? Yeah, I think, you know, even away from COVID, in 
other normal times, people, when they go on holidays, they want to be safe. They want to go to a safe destination. So hence, a lot of people aren't traveling to places where there might be, you know, some type of civil unrest going on or terrorism or, or a place that's not welcoming. So people always want to feel safe. So of course, that's going to be heightened during these times as well, especially flying. I mean, that's where people think they can social distance a little bit, perhaps at a destination, but to get to the destination, it's really hard. And airlines are saying that they're going to not sell all seeds, but we've seen the pressures for them. It's really hard for them to uh, have 25% seating capacity and be sustainable economically. So that's really challenging. And despite them saying that they're only going to have you know, every second seat sold, we can see some airlines on the news in America. We've seen some that have been just being packed. So despite people wearing masks, et cetera, I think people will be really uncomfortable. So I think the airline sector is going to be one of the last ones to come back for, a, it's going to take a long time to see how that's going to work. So it's about, you know, risk and safety. People want to only travel if they feel a, a certain sense of being safe. Okay, let's talk about focusing on on the UK because it was all works the other way. First of all, how will it hit the, what everything we just talked about from people that are coming from overseas here? That those numbers obviously go very much down over the summer. Um, how will that hit tourism and finances in the UK? I mean, how much is that worth to the UK? Uh, it's worth a lot. So if we think about the World League tables in terms of visitor numbers, Britain, I think the last uh, year was six. So we get the six most tourists in the world coming here from other countries, uh, which is great. But on the flip side, Brits like to travel when we go abroad. Uh, we have a huge, what we call a, a negative balance of payments. Uh, in terms of our economy. So we have a negative manufactured goods balance of payments, but also in terms of tourism, we have a negative balance of payments. And that means more Brits travel abroad on holiday than people coming into us. And that's not surprising because we are, you know, a more Northern climate. We can't have that guaranteed weather. It's like Germany or Scandinavia or even my home country, Canada. People want to leave for guaranteed sunshine and nice weather. You know, France and Spain are lucky. France, you can go from the north of France to the south. People stay within the country. So, you know, people will want to, you know, it, it's great that people want to stay in this country and that might help the negative tourism balance payments. But on the flip side, we're not getting those international tourist dollars coming in. So we're not getting people coming into the airports and landing, which creates lots of tax revenues. I don't know if you saw a couple of weeks ago, but a lot of the regional airports in this country are owned by local councils or part, uh, partly owned by them. They're missing out on all the tax revenues that are created from the landing levies. So that is going to fund social services in lots of local communities. So the regional airports are really going to struggle. And of course, tourism, you know, it's worth about 10, 11% of the uh, gross domestic product in this country right and I think this COVID epidemic has really shown how tourism industry is really crucial 
to the economy of the country and how it links to so many different sectors as well. So, you know, it's nice to think people are going to stay in Britain more, mm. but there are some downsides of that mm. as well. Uh, and I can talk about some of the positive and negatives you want yeah. about people staying more in Britain. Yeah, well, 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 I think we'll come to that. We'll come to, we'll come to the people, the places as well where, um, you know, obviously, there are places in the UK which are completely geared towards tourism and um, there are even some places in the UK geared towards tourism where they make a lot of the money and they don't actually want anyone there at the moment and we'll come to that as well but I mean for, for some areas tourism like we said is, is a fundamental part of their community isn't it I mean businesses will suffer hotels restaurants cafes bars you know it's a tricky time and they need they need these tourists to come through with a you know with a bit of expendable income which a lot of people don't have at the moment, you know, to come through their doors. Yeah, and as we said, it you know, those are the direct jobs related to hospitality, hotels, restaurants, uh, Airbnbs, and, and uh, the tourism attractions. But there's also the indirect jobs, all the construction jobs, for example, to help support tourism. If people aren't developing and investing in new tourism projects, it's all the taxi drivers all the other people that are connected to the industry and it really is you know a major uh, proportion of the industry and a lot of times you know tourism is one of those sectors in lots of places around the world it's almost like an invisible sector a lot of times we know it happens out there but we don't realize how important it is until something like this happens. I think we can go back to, you know, just um, the turn of the century with foot and mouth disease, where the countryside was seen as being closed. And, you know, tourism came to the fore there too, in terms of how many businesses were suffering. And, you know, a lot of times the government doesn't give a lot of support to tourism industries, you know, other highly unionized sectors, you know, whether it's farming or other primary sectors, you know, they get a lot of government support and a lot of times tourism is left on its own. So a lot of people who work in the hospitality, tourism and events sector are really hit hard. It was one of the first sectors right away to be hit, of course, by the lockdown and it's probably likely to be the last sector to recover as well. But it, I think this time has just really put tourism at the forefront to really show how integral it is to the local fabric of communities and destinations for yeah. sure i mean so how, how people will be thinking about staycations instead um how much can that really make up the deficit financially it's a difficult question to answer i guess because we don't know how quickly restrictions will be lifted and how free we're going to be to go on these on these trips but potentially but let's say all, all going well plans go well a month maybe a month and a half two months time we can we can go on these staycations how helpful will that be to the industry uh it will yeah last um a couple of years ago the latest statistics i have it's about a 17 billion pound deficit so that means our brits going abroad spent 17 billion more than mm. international tourists brought in and that's quite a huge deficit. And quite interesting to go back to the tourism balance of payments. It used to be fairly even up in, you know, in the 70s. And it would fluctuate due to a number of reasons. So the oil crisis, for example, in the early 70s made it very expensive for people to travel, staycation. So we just had a small surplus. 
it, uh, one of the key things too, if we look at uh, reasons why it fluctuates, good weather. So if we tend to have a hotter summer, and we've had pretty good weather since lockdown started, people aren't so inclined. So we see little blips, good British weather for a prolonged period means more people will stay here. Why do we need to go to the Mediterranean if we're having 25 or 26 degree weather here? And we've had, a, in the last few years, some good weather and that helps. Uh, of course, what really drove our tourism deficit to get bigger and bigger in the 80s and 90s was the rise of low-cost airline. Relatively cheap to fly abroad. So we have, an, an, you know, there's a few other things. The value of the pound is another one. So, you know, when um, Britain voted to, uh, for Brexit, that drove our pound down for a few years. And that actually was good for British tourism. Mm -hmm. It meant it was cheaper for international tourists to come here. So we saw a huge rise in North Americans coming to Britain. So that was great. It made it a little bit more expensive for us to go abroad. So that helped our deficit a little bit. So we always have these kind of variables to always think about. Now, if we think about people staying in Britain and not being able to travel, of course, it's going to hugely impact our tourism deficit. It means it'll, uh, it would be nice to get it almost to uh, an even point. That would be a huge win. And, you know, so people will stay. And if we think about Great Britain, Great Britain has a, a beautiful offer, a wide diverse range of tourist attractions and cultural uh, destinations. So people, I think after the lockdown, if they can travel abroad, they will want to travel. And we can even see people were itching to get out in the last few weeks to uh, go somewhere, weren't they? And that tended to be to the coast to get out of the cities and, and enjoy the nice weather on the beach, for example. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, here in Brighton, obviously we've seen more visitors over the past few weeks um, with all the great weather, as you mentioned, that we've had. Um, council actually asking this week for its own powers to restrict those numbers coming in because of the potential infection risk that that could bring. Obviously, how, how you do that is, uh, is another matter. Um, could we see similar kind of messages coming from other places as time goes on? I think we will touch upon places like Cornwall and Lake District in, in a bit, but you know, as the, as the weather continues to get better, these places like Brighton are getting a little bit overwhelmed, aren't they? And I think a lot of people may then be put off by it, mightn't they? I, yeah, I mean, the problem is some of our big tourist attractions like our theme parks aren't open yet. Mm. So I think once some of those attractions are open, that will help ease the pressure because there aren't too many places for people to go at the moment because, you know, whether it's our big art galleries and museums or as I said, the theme parks and, and larger tourist attractions, once they start to get open, I think that will help diversify the kind of places that people can go to. So people are quite restricted in terms of what type of tourist activities they can engage in too. And of course, one of the biggest 
um, things that we don't really associate a lot with tourism, but it is, it's, you know, retail and shopping tourism. People can't really go to big malls either. You know, if we think about the number one tourist attraction, interestingly, in America, people think, oh, it's Disney. It's actually the Mall of America in Minneapolis. It's the biggest mall. Mm -hmm. It has the most tourists. It's an interesting place. It's a mixture of retail. It actually has a theme park inside the, right. the mall. Um, it has a university. It has some churches. So, you know, that's another thing that we've been restricted to do is go into, into big malls, too. So I think once social distancing and more the economy opens up i think there might be a little bit less pressure specifically on the beaches and saying that there will be some seaside destinations who are going to have to play this balance of well how many tourists do we want and how many can we accommodate because we've yeah. seen that in the news quite a bit haven't we during the lockdown people in the lake district or cornwall or other places saying stay away mm. how do you control that <laughs> That's the problem in a uh, in a liberal society, democracy, isn't right, it? Yeah. So I think part of that control will come back, I think, if other parts of the economy open up in the tourist attractions, that will have a natural thing of, you know, people will want to go to the theme parks, for example, as well. So in turn, I mean, the thing about controlling numbers, we have a, you know, we have this concept of over-tourism, which is really risen in the last few years. Lots of destinations around the world, if you think of Europe, for example, Amsterdam, Venice, and Barcelona are probably the three biggest uh, places where they've actually become too successful, too many tourists. So what they're doing is kind of demarketing their destinations. So Amsterdam, for example, is not investing money in promoting Amsterdam as a destination. Uh, the Dutch government is kind of promoting Holland, Netherlands as a destination, trying to yeah. spread people out. So, you know, one could argue that could work in Britain too, for people to go to different parts of the country and kind of demarket or not invest in marketing Cornwall or the Lake District to try to get people to go to different places. Because this country is blessed with a wide range of wonderful attractions and a lot of people don't really know their own country. So this might be yeah. a great opportunity for people to discover how great their own country, their own backyard is in terms of holiday destinations. Which parts of the country do you think could benefit from all this? Well, I hope that uh, people discover other parts of Britain which aren't the classic places to go to like the Cotswolds and Lake District or Devon or Cornwall. I mean obviously this the seaside is always going to be a winner for for Brits. Mm -hmm. So perhaps going to some of the more quieter places that have struggled economically because if we think about you know since the 1950s a lot of the English seaside resorts have gone into decline so some places like Brighton or Eastbourne have done quite well mm. other places like Hastings or you know some of the uh, places like Great Yarmouth you know they have struggled so maybe they would benefit that people can go to some of these places as well mm -hmm. you now I would think people would want to go to places like in Wales or the Northeast um, and Cumbria and places like that, Northumberland, uh, Yorkshire. I just think 
perhaps people make that decision, they'll think, you know what, Cornwall or Devon or the Lake District is going to be busy, and maybe they research that themselves and realize, you know, there are a range of other places to go to. Mm-hmm. Um, those very popular areas that we we're talking about, Cornwall, the Lake District, the places that were asking people to, to stay away, um, they received a lot of criticism for that as well. Do you think that's fair? This is coming back to the concept of over-tourism. There's kind of a love-hate relationship with tourism in lots of places. People who are directly linked to tourism, they run an attraction or a hotel, a B&B, a good restaurant. You know, people who have that direct connection to tourism, they tend to favor tourism. It's the people who aren't connected to tourism. So they're the ones to complain about the traffic as well yeah and you know i can see that in my hometown in eastbourne you know we have the annual air show in august here airborne which attracts half a million people a year most people love it but there's a small pocket of people who complain about it they think it should be cancelled because of the traffic and the pollution that it causes but a lot of times people don't realize because tourism is one of these invisible industries they don't realize how much tax dollars are created from tourists coming in and how that filters back into the local economy and funds parks and schools and recreation services as well or even uh, road works as well Mm -hmm. so i think a lot of time because tourism people aren't aware of how it's linked to other sectors in the economy and how it creates all those tax dollars it i think a lot of people don't know the benefits there and so so sometimes i think people in those kind of destinations don't realize how lucky of the quality of life they have because of tourism but because they're not directly involved they do want you to stay away you know it always comes back to well what's the perfect number of tourists to have a classic tourist attraction would be you know we have a wonderful uh, range of tourist attractions in this country heritage properties old castles or old buildings And they're constantly dealing with this dilemma. You want enough tourists to come in in the year at some stage to create revenue, but you don't want too many tourists that you are doing negative damage to the attraction because the more tourists you have in an enclosed building, it starts uh, creating wear and tear on the building, humidity, destroying the tapestries or the paintings, et cetera, and people taking flash photography, et cetera. So it's a fine balance. And I think that's a nice microcosm for the tourism industry in general for an entire destination. It's nice to have a certain number of tourists, but you don't want too many that the carrying capacity is met. Because once you get too many tourists, then when you get your local residents who live there, they start getting quite angry or antagonistic towards tourists and not very welcoming, which creates a bad reputation as well. So I think that's going to be the challenge as if people stay home in Britain more and more this year, that, you know, it's a small, we're a small island nation. It, you know, people are going to see tourist numbers rise in certain destinations and hopefully that will be a bit more evenly spread. So I think there will be some residents, saying we don't want tourists whereas other voices in those same destinations says yes please please come Mm. we're probably all a bit guilty 
of that when something impacts where you live when it's your home your your home you want to feel at home don't you i think and when when the roads are busy and the trains are packed and you just want to get home i think that's where the frustration comes but we're all probably willing to go and do the same thing in someone else's part of the country so we're all it's one of those things that a lot of us will do all the time i imagine um well i think we a lot of people we demonize tourists sometimes don't we that we treat them all the same you know we have tourists who are very well behaved tourists they're very sustainable they read about places whether they stay in britain or go abroad you know they try to learn some local language or customs they're aware not to cause offense they try to stay local with a small independent business as opposed to staying in a big multinational chain hotel they want to eat local restaurants they don't want to eat at a at a chain restaurant so we have tourists who are very responsible and then we, of course we have our other tourists who um give people bad reputations you know they're the mass tourists they're not really that interested in in learning about local culture they perhaps want to drink or sun tan or whatever and and you know and i think a lot of times tourists are you know some of us are ashamed to admit we're a tourist i live in eastbourne I'm about three quarters of a mile to the beach since lockdown in March. I haven't gone down to the beach once. So even though I'm a local resident, I'm a bit worried if I go down to the seafront because so many other people have been going down there. People might think, oh, here's a tourist. What are you doing here? Even though I'm a local resident. So I think a lot of us are anxious about being seen as a tourism and we might feel guilty about going to places but at the same time we know lots of businesses throughout britain are asking for tourists i think it was the silly islands just a couple of weeks ago we're saying we need tourists to come in so but we are getting these mixed messages aren't we because cornwall saying we don't want you obviously they do but it's compounded by that fear of you know the coronavirus so mm. that's that's a, a it's a really complex situation right now yeah i mean a lot of us like the whole phrase the phrase i don't want to look like a tourist when someone says to you oh, why don't you get out the map and even if you're in a foreign country and you'll say well i don't want to look like a tourist you are a tourist you're right um uh, generally no i teach that you know yeah. generally okay. i think we should yeah. be proud that we're mm. tourists you know you know, it's quite easy to say we shouldn't fly somewhere because of the pollution we cause and, and CO2 emissions. But at the same time, if we don't fly, we're not supporting jobs and livelihoods and destinations around the world. So I don't, it's too simple just to say we should never fly. Yeah. Because we do a lot of good as tourists, you know, besides the economic impacts, it's about cultural exchange. It's about breaking down prejudices and stereotypes stereotypes all around the world we learn about ourselves our own country and our own place in the world so you know i tell students about the negative and positives about tourism but you know people are in individuals they have to be a responsible tourist mm -hmm. as well so just like staying in this country you know i'm not my my own personal choices i'm going to stay away from somewhere like Cornwall, I'm going to discover new places because there's so many wonderful places in this country to to go for a, a weekend break or to sightsee or explore our lovely countryside, etc. And it's so important to make the travel sustainable as well. Do you think that behaviours might change because of this crisis in general? Well, there's been quite a lot of talk in the media and amongst academics and 
the industry itself, whether this is going to fundamentally change uh, people's travel behavior. I must admit I'm a bit of a skeptic. I think once the industry gets back to normal, whether that is a couple of years from now, I think people will go back to their uh, regular patterns of doing lots of city breaks, perhaps. Um, so I'm a bit skeptical of that. So we'll have to see where that one is. But I don't see people necessarily flying less in the future. Obviously this year that's going to happen, but once the airlines open up, if they recover and um, the epidemic is addressed and people feel safe and traveling, I think people go back to their normal patterns. There might be a rise in certain types of more uh, sustainable holidays. Camping, for example, there's been some buzz about camping, um, but we'll just have to see about that one. Yeah, I'm, I think I might share your views a little bit about we're fully up and running. I'm fairly sure those planes are going to be full to capacity. Um, just your personal opinion, but what sort of level of infection do you think would be right to encourage staycations? And what do you think about the thought that this could spread infection to other areas of the country which maybe aren't so badly affected which of course is another thing we've been it's been in the news a lot recently about maybe not going back to a national lockdown if that happens but we have sort of regional measures that come in and i guess those regions would be very you know they might be very strong on tourism and it might make a lot of money from that but when it comes to if you've got a, a low infection rate do you really want everyone to be coming in it's a tricky balance. Yeah, I think lots of places around the world are struggling with that issue. Um, I mean, I'm not a scientist. Obviously, it's about mm. keeping the R rate below one mm. there. Uh, so that's a really hard question for me to answer in terms of, you know, I think people's, any type of tourist, when you travel, you should always educate yourself about the destination you're going to and I think a lot of people don't so I think that would be part of it if people were staying in the UK they were staying at home and not going anywhere abroad that they would think about the regional levels and variances in infection rates and you know if I knew a certain part of the country was higher or lower from where I lived I may think about that myself um, I don't think a lot of people will do that because I don't think a lot of people invest that time. Uh, so that's quite hard to answer that yeah. question. Yeah, I guess. And finally, really, I think, what do you think about the, what sort of, I think more the question might be, do you think that a, a version of what we've all been able to experience is better than, um, nothing at all so we're seeing things open up in different ways aren't we so shops will be opening again soon and there'll be um you know the social social distancing will be in place you have to you know encourage to wear masks gloves tourism in the same way might be a bit strange things sport opening up without crowds um so you know do you, are you of the sort of opinion from a tourism point of view that something is better than nothing or you know, can you get the same enjoyment out of those trips away? Will um, people feel fulfilled and then maybe even stretch the boundaries, I think is maybe where I'm going with that. You know, do you sort of, you're in that setting. Do you, do you maybe then push it a little bit like we maybe have seen on beaches over the last few weeks? 
Yeah, I, I think so. It, you know, because part of when we travel, it's about the interactions we have with local people and the conversations we have in our brief encounters in restaurants or attractions or in the streets somewhere. Um, you know, people will want to, some people want to social distance, won't they? But we can see that beach in uh, Dorset where there's only one stairs going up or down. People weren't social distancing at all. Um, I think we just have to be very careful because some of those pictures we see on the beaches, I think the camera angles make yeah, it seem sure. more crowded than they are. So if you look mm -hmm. at some of the images from the drones above, it, people did seem to be a little bit social distancing themselves. And I guess it's just, you know, in this country, I haven't seen that many people wearing masks mm -hmm. compared to other countries yet. I don't know if that will come into, um, into favor a bit more when people travel in their own country yeah. there. So, you know, some form of tourism, I think it shows that life is a little bit back to normal. It gives us a sense of normalcy, doesn't it, to be able to go down to the beach or to get an ice cream on the beachfront or go somewhere for a walk on the countryside. So, you know, I think it really shows how important it is for people to, uh, engage in some type of tourism activity it's been really great to talk to you about all this it's been you no know, fascinating to sort of get your view about it as well and, and where we're going to go with this goodness knows where what everyone's going to be doing this summer to try and get away because I, I know a lot of people will be going a bit stir crazy now and wanting to to find somewhere else if you could give a tip where would you where if you go anywhere in the country right now where would you go to let's pretend the weather's nice weather's back well, I could say Eastbourne, my hometown. It's a lovely place right on the edge of the Downs, in case people don't know much about Eastbourne. But I do like Yorkshire. I think it's lovely up north in some of our industrial towns. Uh, you know, they're kind of neglected from industry, but they've got a wonderful heritage tourism offer as well. So I'm a big fan of up north. I, I live for a year in Sheffield to do my... Um, degree. I mean, you were up north in Staffordshire too, you know, yep. some lovely places up there and beautiful countryside too. And, you know, for me, I would like to go more inward than outward to the seaside. I think there's lots of lovely places to discover in this country, even though I just did promote Eastbourne too. Uh, we'll, we'll promote Eastbourne, of course. <laughs> and if any prospective students have any courses that are starting in, that, uh, in Eastbourne, uh, it's a lovely place to to live, especially when the sun's out. Um, we end every podcast with some questions away from your work, I guess, just to get to know you a little bit better. So just some quick fire questions. The first one is, what advice would you give to your younger self? I think it is about reading. You know, when I was younger, I didn't read much. And this is how we learn. Mm -hmm. And I read lots now. So read. It's a wonderful activity. Yeah, and if you could pick any other subject to study at the University of Brighton, what might it be? Well, we have a great journalism and sports journalism course. I'm a big, big sports fan. I would love to be able to write about it, so sports journalism. Yeah, it's, a, it's not a bad job. Um, what positive changes um, have you experienced from life in lockdown? Positive changes, um, just to be aware that I can be quite self-sufficient. Mm -hmm. and uh, how much my cats love having me home, mm -hmm. that I'm asleep. My cats, I've got one who's just come next to me now, but he's behaving very well. <laughs> well done. Um, can you pick a favourite place in Sussex? 
Rye. So Rye's a lovely town on East Sussex, just near the Kent border. Fantastic. Yeah. Anytime I have visitors coming from abroad or um, even within this country, I take them. They're all blown away by it. Yeah, trip to Canberra Sands. Lovely stuff. Um, uh, when lockdown is lifted, if you could give visitors to Brighton, Eastbourne and the area a tip of what to do and experience, what might it be? Uh, for Brighton, for me, I think there's two things. Wonderful restaurants. Mm -hmm. And I love, love the independent shops in the lane. So go support your local independent retailers. And there's lots of quirky little lovely shops in Brighton. Yeah great restaurant scene as well um tell us something interesting about you which a lot of people may not know in the 90s before i came to britain i met liam gallagher and the rest of oasis mm -hmm. and i talked to liam gallagher about coronation street for a while right okay where was that where did you come across him how's this uh, situation arise just when they were releasing definitely maybe you know, that was much bigger here. They didn't really take off so much, but we had an independent radio station in Toronto and they came down for a, an appearance and there weren't that many people there and I had a very easy opportunity to chat with them. Cool, nice. Um, and if you Who could would have thought he was a Cor Corey fan, huh? <laughs> well, I guess he's from Manchester, isn't he? That would be a, I, I had a, I've, I've had a sort of privilege to interview Liam Gallagher after uh, no not sorry I've, I've had privilege to interview Noel Gallagher after uh, Manchester City won the title down at Brighton which was last year um, and that was a very interesting experience and that was not a uh, quiet occasion uh, lots of people around and um, if you could pick three people to host at a dinner party um, they could be past or present um, who would they be and why um. one's going to be a little bit cliched um, just a big huge Barack Obama fan mm -hmm because um, he's the president. Uh, How much do you think things might have changed with if he was around at the moment? Uh, a lot different, mm. you know. He'll, he had a wonderful, uh, he could speak wonderful, the, the way he spoke and how much empathy he showed. Yeah. You know, uh, great. I just started just before lockdown, uh, one of my biggest music fans is Madonna. I just think she would have some wonderful stories to tell of mm -hmm. all the people she's met. And I'm going to go for a sports connection. I'm a huge sports fan. I think we know a little bit more about our current sports stars because of social media, et cetera. So I'm just going to go back a little bit of a generation. Mm -hmm. I was a huge Steffi Graf fan. I think she's had a wonderful life, a little bit, you know, quite quiet. So I'd love to invite her to dinner to get her know her a little bit more about her times on the tour and mm. on her marriage to Andre Agassi and I just see that their son uh, Jaden has signed a baseball contract he's supposed to might make it to the major leagues in mm. America so very interesting there so those are the three people for yeah. dinner and what's your what is your sport mainly is it is tennis your main sport would you say or or most sports uh, I love watching the NFL yeah NFL fan. I play tennis though. I belong to a, a tennis club and I just got back. We've been allowed to play for a couple of weeks now, singles, and this week we're allowed to play doubles. So I, I play tournaments around the world. I oh, cool. play some amateur level tournaments as well. I'm just a big fan of going to Wimbledon and Eastbourne and Roland Garros and the US Open. I've been to quite a few tennis tournaments, so I love my tennis. So that's been really hard during this shutdown to have no sports on TV. 
very hard. Yeah. Ice hockey, being Canadian, of course, yeah. big ice hockey fan, track and field. I could go on and on about yeah. lots of sports. <laughs> um, look, thanks so much for coming on, Nigel. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you, um, to to you Richard. Uh, that's it for this week's podcast if you enjoyed it please do subscribe like retweet share uh, we're on apple Podcasts, spotify youtube and uh, most of the podcast apps just search university of brighton thanks for listening